from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this pre-Thanksgiving Day weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Sold a record-breaking $30,000 per acre land sale. I wouldn't have bet we'd ever see a $30,000 sale uh, you know, this year either. Just how high can these land values go? Russia signs off on a grain deal extension. Good news for world grain supplies, but why it put grain prices under pressure. The power of cover crops. Because that's big in this dry environment. The secret for a couple farmers to flipping their soil. And in John's world. Walking and ideas. Now for the news, it was a big week for one of our biggest trading partners, Mexico, making its largest single-day purchase of U.S. corn ever. The country buying nearly 1.9 million metric tons, or 73.5 million bushels on Wednesday. Around two-thirds was for this marketing year, the other third for the next marketing year. That's when Mexico's GMO ban is expected to kick in. It's also purchased 9 million bushels on Tuesday. So far this month, Mexico has bought over 2.6 million metric tons of U.S. corn, which is 104.2 million bushels. So is it just coincidence that Mexico has been on a buying spree since the government announced their ban on GMO corn would start in 2024? Well, one market analyst tells us he doesn't think so, and he's skeptical about the ban. Buy it before you ban it, I guess. Um, I have a lot of questions, as do a lot of traders and analysts, regarding this potential ban of GMO import. I just... I don't know how they're going to replace the 600 million bushels of corn that they buy from the United States in a given year. They have claimed that they have some sort of plan to do so through uh, U.S. non-GMO growers and, and then uh, corn that would be sourced elsewhere. I just I find it really, really hard to believe. Baklovic says his sources tell him the GMO ban is politically motivated and Mexico is using it for some sort of trade leverage. And a deal that's allowed grain shipments to move out of Ukraine is being extended. The Black Sea Grain Initiative was due to run out this weekend. The deal established a safe shipping corridor in the Black Sea and inspections to address Russian and Ukrainian concerns. The United Nations helped to broker the original agreement along with Turkey. The UN Secretary General saying he welcomed the extension. I want to uh, express my deep commitment and the commitment of the UN to do everything possible for the smooth implementation of this agreement uh, in Istanbul uh, by the Joint Coordination Center and also to remove the remaining obstacles to the unimpeded exports of Russian food and fertilizers essential to avoid a food crisis uh, next year. The UN reports more than 11 million tons of ag product has been moved from the region, adding up to more than 520 shipments. Also this week on the diplomatic front, President Biden met the president of China face to face for the first time since taking office. President Biden meeting Chinese leader Xi Jinping for long-awaited talks at the G20 summit in Bali. The two men in their remarks saying there was real value in meeting face to face. President Biden adding he hoped the relationship with Beijing would be one of fierce competition, not of conflict. Advisors to the White House saying the president raised issues on human rights, North Korea and Russia, with both sides agreeing that using nuclear weapons was unacceptable. President Xi says the two sides should use history as a mirror to let it guide the future. He was as straightforward as he has been with me in the past. 
And I, I think that uh, we understand one another, which is the most important thing that can be done. Commodities seeming to take less of an interest in the talks and more focused on rising COVID cases in China and what that will do to demand. That's along with word that China will increase pork imports in the coming months. Well, this coming Thursday, families will be gathering for Thanksgiving. And the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual Thanksgiving dinner survey shows people will be paying 20% more for the traditional meal. It reports a feast for 10 people will total just over $64. That's less than $6.50 per person. It represents a $10.74 increase from last year's average. Now, the centerpiece of most tables, the turkey, that's responsible for the biggest increase, up 21% this year. AFBF says the increase can be attributed to a slightly smaller flock this year, along with increased feeding costs. Now stuffing, it's up a whopping 69% along with pie crust and a half pint of whipping cream up 26%. The organization says inflation is slashing the purchasing power of consumers along with supply chain issues and the war in Ukraine. No matter the cost, hopefully that meal is with your family and friends. All right, that's it for the news. A quick switch from summer-like weather to winter with snow blanketing the upper Midwest and other areas. So how long does the chill last? We have a check of weather next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 3900 series bale processors are available in left or right hand discharge and can process all types of round and square bales, even baleage bales, no matter the moisture or how frozen they are. Learn more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik. Matt, welcome back. What a sudden switch in the weather. We did see some much needed moisture in some areas that came in the form of snow with definitely some chill gripping a hold of the country this week. Yeah, Tynan, we do have uh, more cooler air on the way as we head into the week, but we do want to take a quick look at our drought monitor, a little bit updated, but still uh, drought conditions persisting across uh, really right through the midsection of the country, still extreme to exceptional drought there in parts of Kansas and Oklahoma. Now, as we head through the winter months and into the spring, this will become a much bigger deal if this does persist. So hopefully we'll get some precipitation in here with some winter storms and slowly eat away at this drought over the next few months, so hopefully we won't have to worry about that come planting season in the spring. But here's a look at Monday as we head into uh, Thanksgiving week here. Much cooler across the north, still milder up into the Ohio Valley, though, and towards the east coast. A few showers in Texas and southern Florida. Otherwise, just a cold front moving its way on in with some more shower activity there in the Pacific Northwest. It'll stay chilly in the northern Rockies, but warmer back in the southwest and only a few snow showers left in parts of the interior New England as that system exits out. Now, as we head towards Wednesday, getting closer to Thanksgiving, cooler in the east again. We've got some reinforcing cooler air coming in from the uh, Midwest there. And out ahead of that, we've got some moisture moving its way up into the Mid-South near Memphis and down towards uh, New Orleans with some rain showers there. Even parts of Florida going to be dealing with that. And then some rain and mountain snow back in the West. That's going to make its way to the middle of the country 
where we could be looking at another system getting going as we head towards Friday. Now this one's still up in the air. A lot of moving parts here. If it's farther to the north, it'll be more rain. If it's farther to the south, kind of a clipper system here. That would be more on the snowier side where a couple of inches of snow could fall by the end of the week, but something that we've got to keep an eye on there behind that chillier air will filter in for a short time, but then turn more mild as we head into the beginning of December. So something we'll keep an eye on, but here's the jet stream as we head through this week, staying pretty zonal for the first part of the week. It shuts off the lake effect snow, but you can see that cooler air start to work its way on in by the end of the week. That's why we could see some of that snow again, a lot of moving parts still, but then the mild air returns and warmer back there in the west. And here's a look at the temperatures this week below normal in the east and across parts of Texas above normal in the west, where we're going to see the warmth start to move its way on out. Then as we head into uh, the precipitation here below normal through the middle part of the country back to the four corners, more rain again moving into the Pacific Northwest with mountain snow and then above normal up and down the east coast and back into parts of Texas as well. Temperatures next week will be a little bit above normal, but still pretty mild across most of the country, just below normal across the east and then precipitation again below right through the middle part of the country above normal in the Pacific Northwest and across parts of the uh, Pacific Coast there in California and more rain and potentially some snow likely in the east. Thanks, Matt. Well, the grain deal that we talked about in news, it's good news for grain supplies across the world. But was it the only thing that sent prices plummeting this week? Dwayne Bussey and Tommy Grisafi, they digest the markets next. Welcome back and joining us for markets this weekend. Tommy Grisafi, as well as Dwayne Bussey. Tommy, I'll start with you. You know, when you look at whiplash in the markets, a lot of it lately has to do with is Russia going to extend the grain deal or not? Thursday, they said they would. Is, is that what provided that steep pressure on prices on Thursday? Uh, one of the many things happening also that we have uh, the fact that Russia didn't really invade Poland. So that there was the whiplash up. Uh, anyone who bought those anywhere that day is looking at a pretty good loss now. And so you're seeing unwinding of that. Also, Tyne and Dwayne and listeners, December options expire next week. And December options at the Board of Trade CME Group have the largest open interest of all the option series. So there's a. it doesn't surprise me that corn rallied 25 cents off the low the other day because there's a bunch of people short calls or with positions who never thought we'd go there. And two minutes later, uh, they think we're on the verge of World War III, which didn't happen but it's still something that we talk about. So incredible volatility is all that open interest in December options have to be unwind, unwound. And typically we go to a level, maybe that level would be 650 in December corn or $14 in November beans or something. We tend to pin to a strike. I think that's part of the volatility. So we didn't invade Poland. We didn't see an invasion of Poland. We saw this grain deal extended. It seems a lot of bearish news right now, Dwayne, when it comes to the market. So what would it take to excite these markets again and, and provide that, that bullish injection that, that some are, are looking for at the end of the year? I think for the next month, the biggest thing that I could see coming in to really help the bulls would be a, a South America weather scare. And and we're not far off that, possibly anyway. I'm definitely not a weatherman, but you know they've been spood-fed moisture the last three months, getting just enough to keep going, especially in Argentina. And La Nina has been announced this last week that that will continue on into January, which should keep them on the drier pattern. So 
everything looks okay right now, but if you get a weather scare in South America with our tight US stocks up here for all three grains, this thing could get pretty wild yet. Talking to a lot of farmers, Tommy, they're just not excited to move grain and sell right now. They're just kind of content, waiting to see what happens. If you're a farmer and you do have some grain in the bin, you know, what, what do you want them to know? What's your advice for farmers to think about as we close out 2022? Well, congratulations for owning land. Uh, that, that by far continues to be the greatest trade ever in history. And I think the wealth creation in land would give you enough, uh, watching these land auctions trade all across America, get, is enough of a distraction to maybe not notice that we're leaking in price of grain. So to answer your question, I'd like the American farmer and Canadian viewers, of course, to know that if store and ignore doesn't work, you're going to be paying a lot of interest, seven, eight percent interest on operating next year for an asset that very likely may depreciate 20%. And a few years of that, and we're gonna come into a very high cost of production into 23, that can be a very dangerous recipe for the young farmer who doesn't own the land. So landowners are feeling great and they should, their balance sheet looks great. People who are storing, ignoring grain could be in trouble in 23 and 24 time. Well, and you look at the risk on the table, you know, there are a lot of risk. Infrastructure and, uh, you know, transportation has been one of those. We've seen a little bit of improvement on the Mississippi River, Duane. But when you look at basis, we're seeing basis improve in some areas. What is driving that? Is that something that you think is actually a gift right now for farmers that they need to look at? Oh, they definitely should take a look at it because basis is something Tommy and I can't trade on the board of trade for these guys. Basis is just a local deal where, you know, if they get a really strong basis, they have to take advantage of, then we can buy the bushels back if they want to. But, you know, the basis getting this strong this quickly afterwards tells me that our old crop stocks from last year were very tight. And the farmers that are holding supplies are very tight holders because of like what Tommy mentioned. They probably sold from, for some very good prices this last year, and they don't need the cash right now. So it's a pretty interesting situation, especially as this futures market dips a little bit. I think those end users will come in. Well, they're already trying to come in and buy some of these grains, you know, under 650 in corn. I think they'd be an aggressive buyer, but hard to get it out of farmers' hands, which, you know, kind of maybe is a little bit bullish in itself. All right, Dwayne, Tommy, stay with us. We have a lot more to cover coming up later on the, on the program. But first, we need to take a quick break right here on U.S. Farm Report. John's track record on not only our show, but across farm journal publications is impressive, but it does create challenges for staying creative. He tells us why in John's world. Over the past nearly three decades, I have written around 600 articles for farm journal and top producer and about 800 commentaries for U.S. Farm Report. On all too many occasions, I have found myself staring at the computer screen or a wall or off into space, trying to come up with a topic somewhat close to fresh and interesting. This small act of creativity seems to be getting harder and it's being compounded by an, a troublesome factor. Good, even great original thoughts pop into my mind only to slip away if a shiny object goes by. Sadly, I suspect those may have been my better ideas, too. This probably doesn't happen to you, but if it does, this predicament does sound familiar, I have some science you can throw at it. Go for a walk. 
I've noticed that low-level physical activity that can be accomplished by about eight brain cells in the back of my head helps the rest of my dwindling intellectual resources wander freely to stumble across an original idea. Noted psychologist Mihai Cheeksnit Mihai calls this a state of flow, and I think he's onto something. Activities like tillage or sanding a wood project seem to work for me. Recently, researchers have found ways to measure this boost in creativity and identify ways to make it happen more often. It turns out maybe the best activity is walking. The formation of ideas, called ideation, is boosted by this most basic human motion. Now, I've been walking a couple of miles most days for years in a questionable effort for weight control and so I don't have to outright fib to my doctor about exercise. The ideation research indicates I haven't been taking advantage of all the possible benefits. Perhaps the biggest step has been to break myself of the habit of thinking I'll remember that inspiration when I finish. It hasn't been easy, but I've learned to stop and make a note on my phone when those gifts of insight pop up. And I'm doing better, and my cerebral harvest loss, so to speak, is dropping. I'm also slightly more enthusiastic about doing the actual walking. Of course, the thrill of marching into a bitter wind or any kind of precipitation is long gone for me, so I resort to a treadmill more than I used to. Best of all, armed with this new study about walking and ideas, I realize this isn't a recreational device. This is a writing tool, a legitimate business expense. I am so deducting this baby. I may have to take that advice. Thank you, John. And you won't want to miss our annual Harvest of Things special and John's special Harvest of Things commentary. That is next weekend. All right, we need to take a quick break and then we'll have some antique iron with Machinery Repeat next. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we've got a story for you of a father and son showing off their classic Ford. I have a 1942, as best we can tell, uh, Ford 9N or possibly a 2N tractor. Well, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. There isn't any casting numbers. There, there was a casting number on the head that, that uh, did indicate 1942, but the block has been changed. And uh, one of the lead descriptors on it was the hubs, which I, I found were more towards the two end side. My uncle actually picked this up for me as a project from a, a family friend who has a farm close by. It wasn't terrible, it had good bones, uh, but uh, definitely need to, to this level of restoration it needed quite a bit of work. Oh, it was, it was dismantled almost down to the last bolt. Uh, sent everything out, sandblasted, um, prepped it, painted it, reassembled it. But first we made sure it was running before we did that. I, I helped him with like little bits and pieces of the restoration process on it. I helped him with like hanging the parts outside for prepping it for uh, like painting and whatnot. Uh, primarily it's a parade princess. <laughs> so my son calls it the thousand pound paperweight. Well, I like that I get a, the opportunity to like pull it around in parades and get a pull around the cheerleaders with it. I mean, it's kind of a, another type of atmosphere, like getting to drive them around just because they're so like rowdy and cheering on it. There was a, a company in uh, just outside of Spokane 
called Draper Tractor Parts, which has now gone out of business here last year, unfortunately. But they were a great resource for, for getting the parts for it. Uh, just little stuff. The stuff you really wouldn't pay a lot of attention to, clamps and brackets, to try to keep it as original as, as you could. Thanks, Greg. Well, when we come back, are cover crops the key to flipping your soils? We hit the fields to see why it's a recipe that works for some farmers next. Plus, later, $30,000 per acre for farmland? Is it the new norm or a phenomenon? That's still to come on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, some farmers, especially those in strictly corn and soybean rotations, can be a bit hesitant when it comes to cover crops to flip their soils. And as Michelle Rook tells us this weekend in Flip Your Soil, that's especially true for farmers in drier climates. We just asked Nebraska farmers and they'll tell you cover crops and cattle just may be the combination that's key to success. For farmers in the high plains, the most limiting agronomic factor is precipitation. That's why farmers like Adam Heskett have adopted systems to promote soil health through no-till and diverse rotations, including sorghum. The value that it can add to our soils is through really adding residue or crop residue to the soil so we don't have as much evaporation because that's big in this dry environment, but also new to me and, and I guess going forward is the carbon component of grain sorghum and being able to maybe capture some of those benefits as well. He also uses a variety of cover crop mixes which he says catch snow in the winter but even in drought years help to retain soil moisture. The dry years the benefit that I've seen is through reduced evaporation and transpiration so when we have something covering the soil like we see out here if we have a blanket of residue across that we're not going to have the open pan evaporation that we experience from these open soils. Heskett says cover crops create habitat for pollinators and wildlife and decrease wind erosion. They also capture moisture, especially during heavy rain events, and allow it to better infiltrate the soil to get deep down to the crop roots. As far as benefits to the soil, soil health, organic matter, we're out in 1% to 2% organic matter soils, so trying to raise those for better soil health, better water penetration when we get rainfall events. Cover crops have also lowered as input costs. They provide weed suppression to lower herbicide use and the right mix can build specific soil nutrients, decreasing fertilizer use. We saw our FOSS levels increase and part of that is the recycling of nutrients and bringing that nutrient that maybe was tied up into our soils. Heskett says that's good risk management in the current market environment and improves his ROI. The high yields, yeah, they're there, but also what I noticed from the fertility side, um, we're also seeing benefits from reduced inputs. So it doesn't always have to be high yields. You can have a better return on investment. 
Heskett has integrated livestock onto his cover crops and corn and sorghum stocks in the fall to take advantage of the manure. He says this holistic approach has made his operation more sustainable than when he began farming 20 years ago and will continue to improve until his son takes over. More and more successful regenerative farming programs are integrating livestock back on the land to improve soil health. Soil conservationist Mike Winkler says cattle provide various agronomic benefits. Just that hoof action on the soil, breaking up some of that you know, top layer of compaction there. If we do have that top layer of compaction, that could uh, be hindering water infiltration, um, aggregate stability, all that kind of stuff is all wrapped in, into each other. So. Having cows out there is probably definitely a good thing. Livestock introduced in the fall to graze cover crops or corn stalks provide natural fertilizer and can help break up crop residue, plus speed up microbial action in the soil. You know, that buildup of litter, even in no-till situations or cover crop situations, getting that through an animal, breaking that down, getting that litter pounded into the soil. Ann Winkler says cattle can also break up the litter and establish grass stands or CRP to help keep the native grasses in wildlife habitat thriving. Grasses will start going dormant. Wildlife tends to leave at that point in time when you have something that's just so thick. So we can utilize cows, bring cows back out here to trample that litter down into the soil, eat some of those plants off and really beat that grass back a little bit. That will allow some of our forbs and legumes and wildflowers that are sitting out there in the soil to kind of rejuvenate them and give them an opportunity to uh, express themselves. Plus, farmers restoring pasture once converted to cropland can speed up that process through rotational grazing to reintroduce the native grass species and help regenerate the land. In Nebraska, I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, cash cattle prices have been strong, but can it last? Our marketing roundtables, those pick back up next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST. Experience the latest, most efficient system for delivering sulfur and phosphate to meet your crop's needs with Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST. Learn more at SmartNutritionMST.com. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Looking for the next big yield breakthrough? Then look to Pioneer. By combining industry-leading R&D with rigorous local testing, what's next happens here at Pioneer. Dwayne Bussey and Tommy Grasafi joining us again on the show. Dwayne, wheat, a lot of interest in wheat right now. Now that we see this grain deal between um, uh, Ukraine and, and, and Russia and, and seeing that UN grain deal, that will be extended. Is there a lot of excitement in wheat? What is going to take the, these wheat prices to move upward? I think it's going to take some time and honestly, I think right now we're looking at kind of a bearish market and a market that'll really struggle to rally until maybe next spring. Um, we've got a winter wheat crop in the U.S. that is in very poor condition right now. And you get up to my area, some of it just didn't even germ. So it'll actually be probably just under in the spring. So I think it's going to take some time to get a bullish story in that wheat market yet. You know, next spring, if, if we don't raise the crop here, it still becomes a bullish thing. But like to Tommy's point in the last segment, you know, it's it's at good prices. And if you're planning on planting more wheat because of these high prices, you better take some action too. Tommy, when you look at some of these outside markets, I mean, you look at how inflation and um, crude oil prices and just everything that's impacting our commodities here in agriculture, what are the signals that you're watching and what is it telling you 
about commodity prices, not only in the months ahead, but as we head into 2023? Uh, great question. Well, thank you that we have a futures market and we can trade crude oil for multiple years. The, the commodities markets are telling us, or at least the government, the Federal Reserve is telling us they are going to do what it takes to smash inflation. So looking back at a CPI number, a PPI number from the last week or a few weeks, inflation starting to come down. A couple components of inflation, obviously wage inflation, but price inflation of goods. And uh, you're starting to see the whole commodity uh, oh, backlog lessen up. The uh, ports in LA said they had their slowest month in October in 12 years. So remember a year ago when there was just hundreds of ships backlogged. So the backlog of commodities is stopping. If the Fed, listen to the Fed, if they truly want to squash inflation, that is not bullish commodity prices. So this mega bull market of 27, 28 months very well may have already ended and we don't know it yet, or it is on the verge of ending, of course, without a severe weather problem in South America. So keep an eye on lower commodity prices for multiple years, looking at the future mark, the futures market, these 22, 23, and 24 corn, the price is going lower every year. Same thing in beans. Well, and the fear and the talk of a recession has a big impact on, on, on meats. And when you look at cattle, I mean, you look at this cash cattle trade and packers are definitely bidding up right now, Dwayne. Why is that? And do you think those strong bids will continue? Yeah, I think they will continue. I think packers are actually paying up for cash cattle because of what they see in the future. I think they see a fairly tight supply and I think they see a higher market, which you know, kind of counteracts the if we're going into a recession in 23. But, you know, maybe it's every recession is a little bit different than the past one. But, you know, we liquidated a lot of herds here in the last couple of years, at least the size of the herds in the upper Midwest. Montana's down sharply, Texas, the Southern Plains. We've had this cattle on feeder port that's been higher until recently because we've been bringing more cattle in all the time. But now, you know, if we start to get some rains in 23 and people want to build these herds back up, you know, then they'll hold heifers back and this market will really take off. I think packers are going to keep paying up because I, I think demand's very strong and I think export demand will be good in 23 as well. Tommy, you mentioned watch the Fed and keeping a close eye on that. But which commodity of all the commodities that you're trading do you think poses the biggest risk? Oh, that's a tough question. I didn't mm -hmm. know there'd be hard questions on this segment. Uh, I like to blend three, so I'm going to give you a little backward act, uh, answer. Uh, add the price of corn plus the price of beans plus the price of wheat. Put that in one chart and make that your own uh, North America index. So the price of corn, wheat, and beans blended. Uh, some of them could have a strong day someday, a weekday, the others. But corn plus wheat plus beans, I believe, is starting to trend down. King corn in the end time, it seems to what, uh, determine where acres go in the United States. Watch yeah, corn. Definitely. And Dwayne, which commodity do you think is at risk the most? I love what Tommy said there. That's a neat way to look at it when you add those three together. But, you know, we're tight for a reason because of our old crop stocks, which are just recently new crop, are still tight. And we still need to plant this crop next year. We need to gain some acres from my area, the prevent plant area. And weather's still king out there. So I'm not quite the bear yet. But I do agree with Tommy that the year uh, 2023 will probably be the year of a hedger. All right, thanks. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Farmer to Farmer, the Conservation at Work video series features real stories, real successes, real quick. See what's possible at farmers.gov slash conservation. 
The I-80 Harvest Tour is brought to you exclusively by Case IH. Case IH equipment is designed, engineered, and built by farmers. See their stories at BuiltByFarmers.com. Well, farmers in Wisconsin are nearly done with soybean harvest at 97%, but corn isn't as close to the finish line with nearly 30% left to pick. Michelle Rook rejoins us this weekend to look at a bin buster of a crop that's slowing down harvest pace in Wisconsin this year. Tying in USDA's November crop report, the agency put soybean yields at 54 bushels per acre in Wisconsin, down just one bushel from 2021, but projected record corn yields this season at 182 bushels per acre. That's up two bushels from last year, and yield results from the field are backing up that forecast. For Wisconsin farmer Will Morris, the results of this year's soybean harvest have been unexpected, but welcome, especially with the weather extremes during the season. So this year our soybean yields seem to be above average. We actually were very surprised. We were not figuring on an above average soybean crop with the way the weather was. We had a very cool September and a few big rains but they were at the right times. The lack of disease on his soybeans was also a contributing factor to those strong yields. And in soybeans, it was no more than our normal years. I would call it a low pressure soybean disease year. For corn, USDA is projecting record yields in Wisconsin this year, and that trend was certainly evident at Morris's farm. He says disease pressure was low and they didn't see much tip back. Corn yields this year are above average as well. The only difference between an above average crop this year and a normal above average crop is we have higher harvest moisture this year. And we're probably looking at five to 10 bushel above average yields. And he says corn yields would have been even higher if test weights would have been closer to normal. This year, the test weights on corn are average. We're running 56 to 57 pound corn this year. Last year, we were well above average. We were mostly 59 to 60 pound corn last year. The corn was also wet with moisture levels 3 to 4% higher than previous falls. But that means some extra drying costs. Corn, the last couple of years, we've become accustomed to 20, 21, even some teens. Uh, and this year, we're probably running mostly 23 to 25% right now. But despite the ups and downs of the season, he says 2022 will be a profitable one for his farm. And in the end, it turned out to be a very good year and uh, gives us a lot of hope for next year. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, how quickly will soybeans take flight? Customer support is next. Sustainable Aviation Fuel and Soybeans. U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by the National Pork Board. National Pork Board is getting the word out about real pork with a myth-busting campaign that shows consumers the story of real pork on the farm. Visit pork.org slash we care to learn more. Well, there's a lot of buzz about soybeans taking flight with sustainable aviation fuel. John Phipps gives us his take and customer support. A question today about soybeans and airplanes from Carlton Nelson in Kirkoven, Minnesota. I've heard that there is a push to develop airplane fuel from soybeans. It sounds like the demand will increase tremendously within the next two years. Yet I asked a liquid fuels representative at a recent co-op meeting and he only talked about ethanol. 
Is there really a bright future for soy flight fuel or not? What's the truth? Well, about a year ago, some USDA scientists made news by announcing a process to make sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, from soybean oil. Commodity organizations looked at the aviation fuel consumption numbers and fell in love. I, however, have some questions. First, SAF would be yet another mandated market sustained by tax dollars and regulation. As producers fret over what is going to happen to ethanol and the RFS, why would we want to add another artificial demand subject to political whims? Given the less than spectacular success of soy biodiesel, investors and customers may be leery about depending on SAF from soy. SAF can be made from a lots of feedstocks other than soy oil, like wood chips, municipal waste, and notably ethanol. Plus, even our domestic air fleet will source SAF from the cheapest supplier, which may not be us. The current price of soybeans isn't exactly terrible, even with good world production. Forcing a large new demand by regulation in the face of contrary economics doesn't seem like an attractive business case, especially to draw the needed investment dollars for what one expert estimates as 60 new processing plants. Estimates of the production capacity needed for SAS range from 8 million new acres to 30 million acres, depending on assumptions. Any number in that range will turn the battle for acres with corn, cotton, and wheat into a market upheaval whose outcome could be far different than just raising soy oil prices. Massive expansion of soy production in Brazil and elsewhere springs to mind. It could also be the kiss of death for U.S. cotton production. If we effectively impose SAF for planes and for climate reasons, shouldn't farmers support a similar farm fuel regulation? Bottom line is just because you can make SAF from soy oil doesn't mean economics or public acceptance will support the idea. I say, I'd say the future for soy SAF is more hype than hope. Thanks, John. We'll make sure to get that posted on AgWeb. You can also see more of John's commentary on our Farm Journal YouTube page. Well, $30,000 per acre for a land sale. How does that even pencil? We're digging into the eye-popping land sale next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by NK Seeds, the fastest growing seed brand, getting you top hybrids and varieties that perform on your acre. NK Seeds, bushels don't lie. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on earth. Well, it's starting to sound like a broken record, but there's another record land sale, this time to the tune of $30,000 per acre. So is it a trend or a one-time phenomenon? A record-breaking sale has made its rounds on social media. 73 acres in Sioux County, Iowa, that sold for $30,000 per acre last week. The total price? more than 2.1 million. The company selling the property says the buyer was a local farmer. So now others want to know, where does this crazy land market end? Yeah, that's a really good question because I wouldn't have bet we'd ever see a $30,000 sale uh, this year either. Brent Gloy of Ag Economic Insights says he thinks the jetliner has hit and farmland values will be at least at cruising altitude for now. I think it's going to slow down real fast. Uh, and if 
for a few reasons, but number one being the interest, higher interest rates are going to start having an impact on this land market. While the rise in land values may slow, one-off record sales could continue. There's a lot of money in the farm sector and for people that see that farm that they really want, they've got money to pay that. And so those values will stay pretty strong. He says where he could see land values softening is the more marginal land, but he warns commodity prices today are only fueling the land market. Put $7 corn into your budget for the next 10 years, you can support pretty high farmland prices. The, the question though is whether we think that is kind of where things settle out. Last month, land in Richardson County, Nebraska sold for more than $27,000 per acre and Plymouth County, Iowa saw a $26,000 per acre land sale. And FBN economist Kevin McNew thinks the fuel for farmland, which is commodity prices, could continue. We think, you know, farmland values probably continue to stay high as long as commodity markets stay high, which I think they will for the next year or so. We, you know, we're in a much different paradigm than probably what I've seen in my 50 years in agriculture, where we have really, really constrained supplies and demand growth that is really through the roof. And I think that's a catalyst for farmers for the next year or so, for sure. $30,000 per acre, just mind blowing. Well, make sure you tune in next weekend for our annual Harvest of Thanks special. We are working on those heartfelt stories that show the best of rural America. You can catch those next weekend here on US Farm Report. But that does it for this weekend. We hope to see you next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. US Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.